And one of the things about the open primary issue and about the democracy issue is that it does create platforms and opportunities to bring together people who voted differently in 2016 or in 2020. And I, I find that very nourishing and important. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, John Opdyke, is the president of a group called Open Primaries. John has been a participant in and an advocate for third parties and for independent voters to have a place in our democracy. As a partisan Democrat myself, but someone who's also very interested in full participation, I like to include in my podcast advocates of these kind of reforms. We had a very good chat about his history and what changes he would like to see happen and why. You should listen. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with John Opdyke, of open primaries. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. John, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is John Opdyke. I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, in a somewhat apolitical family. I played soccer in, in high school and college and had a lot of friends from the Caribbean and Latin America. And I, I made the somewhat arrogant decision when I went to college, I went to the University of Michigan, that I was going to play soccer and I was going to become worldly. I was going to learn something about politics and how the world worked. And uh, that was my goal in attending college. And I think I accomplished both goals. Did you ever read the book, How Soccer Explains the World? No, I've read Soccer in Sun and Shadow by Eduardo Galeano, which is my absolute favorite uh, soccer book, but I, I haven't read that book. But my, my freshman year at, at U of M, I joined the Young Democrats and the Young Republicans. I was so naive about politics. I, I didn't know that that was not something you could do. And I very quickly kind of quit both of them because I didn't particularly uh, gravitate towards the kind of politics as a team sport, the kind of pick a team, uh, and, and got active in kind of campus left activities. At that time, there was a lot of work being done to kind of push back against the, the, the funding of the Contras in, in El Salvador and so forth. Um, and then I got involved in, in a group called the Rainbow Lobby. Uh, I took a summer job canvassing, and we were working on f fair elections legislation to 
make the, the system more fair for independent candidates and parties. And I took time off from college. I went to D.C. and kind of got involved in alternative politics, third party politics, and have been an independent ever since I turned 21 and have been involved in efforts to kind of democratize and open up the two-party system for the last 30 years. And now I'm the president of Open Primaries, which is a, a national organization working specifically on the primary system. I find your your biography pretty interesting. I have some points of intersection with it. You know, I spent a summer when I was in college in Evanston. I had a job there as a programmer, but I spent a lot of time in the lake, which was beautiful and just kind of idyllic. And I was a soccer player also. I thought it was interesting that you wanted to become worldly. Tell me a little bit more about what, where you think that was coming from. Well, Evanston, you know, my experience growing up in a, in a very kind of lovely family, great schools, um, I, I noticed from a very young age this, and I didn't know how to understand it. So I'm, I'm, I'm using my language now, but back then I, I had no words for this, is that it was a very diverse community and very integrated in some levels, but extremely segregated in other ways. So my high school was 30% African-American, 20% Latino, and yet my classes were all white. And there was this way in which the, the guys that I played soccer with who were as smart as I was, they weren't in my classes. And it was, it, it kind of struck me, there's something going on here that I don't understand why we're integrated outside and segregated inside. And I didn't know. And I wanted to, to kind of figure out or get a better, better handle on what was going on. In America, and I went to you know my, the school I my, my elementary and middle school was the Martin Luther King Jr. Experimental Laboratory School. I was literally bussed into the black community. I had this experience of kind of like a community, a country grappling with a history of segregation, and yet not seeming to really make a lot of progress and not really know how to do that. And so I, again, chalk it up to naivete and arrogance. I, I thought I could, I could somehow learn something about this and figure out a way to impact on it. What was it about the rainbow lobby that, you know, hooked you enough to take you out of school? And that's a little off the beaten track. Yeah, I, I, I think it was, you know, the experience of being a door-to-door -door canvasser and going out and talking with people throughout the Chicago land area in both Chicago proper and the suburbs about ways in which our democracy was really slanted that the, that that the two parties were privileged in a whole set of ways from the presidential debates I mean you know other than Ross Perot how come you never see anybody but two candidates in the presidential debates how you get on the ballot how even the news is reported on independent candidates and people were enormously responsive to that. And in a way that 
that almost made no sense to me because I, like everybody, thought American democracy was just, you know, the paragon, the ultimate, you know, we're the gold standard in the, in the world for how a, a democracy should function. But when you kind of poke the surface a little bit and get into the weeds, you, you learn a lot. I learned a lot about ways that it was, it was monopolized. And I learned it as a canvasser, not as an academic. I learned it by talking with other people and getting them to write $100 checks after a five-minute conversation, which that's very organizing. It wasn't abstract. I didn't read, I didn't, I didn't study American democracy in a poli-sci class at Michigan. I studied it canvassing in Glencoe, Illinois, and in Hyde Park and interacting with people. And that was extremely, to me, it felt like a way, a way in to answering this question of how do you understand our country's inability to kind of truly integrate. Maybe it's connected to the ways in which our democracy is not quite functioning in a way that's totally inclusive. I, I spent a summer canvassing when I was also of formative age for one of the PERGs in Colorado, Colorado PERG. And that's, I don't know, a lot of houses every day um, also trying to raise money more for environmental stuff. And I think you learn a lot about people talking to them on their doorstep, even if the conversations aren't very long, people are very varied. They are generally pretty nice, particularly I found in neighborhoods that weren't too gated or, you know, like regular neighborhoods of regular people are pretty open to talking and being interested and being genuine as long as you, you know, respond in kind. And you know, I, I think everybody should do that. I agree. So you had this experience that, uh, around Lenora Falani, right. Um, and that's, she was a controversial candidate, uh, for president and, uh, and I wonder if you could talk about how you got involved with that and what, she meant to you and means to you. Yeah. So I was working at the rainbow lobby and Fulani, um, in, in between the summer that I canvassed. And when I took off school to go to Washington, she spoke at the campus of the university of Michigan. And she talked about running. She was the first woman, the first African-American to run for president in all 50 States. Uh, she did that in 1988. And she was talking about, her campaign to support Jackson in the presidential primary, uh, the Democratic primary of 88, and then have an independent option for the, the rainbow vision, you know, the progressive left multiracial empowerment vision if Jackson didn't win the nomination. And, and to me, it was, it was so smart. It was so progressive. It was so, you know, not ultra left in the sense of just, I'm going to run an independent candidacy that's irrelevant. It's designed to, you know, connect and empower a whole set of voices that are looking to impact in the country. I thought it was the smartest thing I'd ever heard since sliced bread. And I was somewhat shocked at how many of my fellow campus progressives 
were very anti-Falani and very critical of her. And like somehow she was a pariah. And I was just like, well, you're wrong and she's great. And I'm going to, I'm going to work with her and help her. And actually in 92, when she ran again, she started out in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire and then ran as an independent candidate. I was her West Coast fundraising director and really loved that campaign. It led to a great deal, including a a coalition coming out of 92, because remember, the big independent in 1992 was not Lenora Filani, it was Ross Perot. But the Filani movement, which I was a part of, we partnered with Perot to build a new political party that was a wonderfully failed experiment. What was that party? It was the Reform Party. People may recall Ross Perot ran as an independent in 1992. He ran as the candidate of the Reform Party in 1996. And the process in between 92 and 96 was a very um, interesting process of bringing together the United We Stand America, the kind of Perot apparatus, which was a center-right apparatus with a left wing, the Fulani movement. And the Reform Party was non-ideological. It had a left, a center, and a right. It had people all over the map on it who agreed that the focus of this party would be democracy reform and economic reform. It would stay away from divisive social issues. It would be an inclusive party. And you know, going into 2000, it looked like, oh, for the first time in 140 years, America was going to have a new political party. I mean, it hadn't, you know, since the Republican Party was founded in 1856, there hadn't been a new mainstream third party that established itself. And we got very close to that. We elected Jesse Ventura in 1998. And it looked like we were on the precipice. And then the whole thing exploded from pressure from without and within. And it was fascinating, though. I was talking with a friend that if you if you look at who was at the table at the Reform Party, who was building it together, if you fast forward to 2016, I guarantee you half those people voted for Donald Trump and the other half voted for Bernie Sanders. That was the kind of the mix at the table there. And it had great potential, but we, we ultimately, we failed. Trump sought the nomination or flirted with seeking the nomination of the Reform Party back in 2000, right? Yeah, I was actually part of a, uh, I, I remember it well. He, he arrived at the convention with, with Roger Stone. We managed to put together a very strong coalition that kept him from getting to stage two of the nomination. We basically drove him out of the party. And it was based on his complete indifference or disinterest in anything other than himself, which doesn't sound like a surprise. We were actually building a party of political reform, of of radical restructuring of American democracy. And Trump couldn't care less about that. It's kind of fascinating. That's kind of what you would think of as a responsible move by a political party to uh, to fend off a narcissist from 
running as their candidate. And one of the things that we've theoretically trusted political parties to do over time is to do some vetting of the candidates and to make sure that the lunatics are kept out of running things. And I wonder how you feel about that. Like the Republican Party failed to keep Trump out. They sort of went through that primary process where they had a ton of candidates and they kept their gloves off him until it was too late. He ends up with a nomination, which is a catastrophe for the country, in my view. How do you think about the, you know, the role of parties as someone who advocates for openness in primaries, for letting people in, but the, here you are like playing a responsible party role in this moment? Well, my thinking has has changed quite a bit. And again, I'm, I'm very proud of, of my history within the third party movement and working to build alternative parties. But one of the reasons that the Reform Party failed, and there were many reasons, is that I think the, the American people are increasingly distrusting of political parties, whether they're Democrat, Republican, or a new alternative. I think that the model of political party is something that is, is starting to come under some strain and some stress. And I think your example of Trump's ability to win the nomination is an indication of that. Because one thing about Donald Trump, in my opinion, is that he is an excellent vulture. He's someone who in his entire business career has always sensed weakness. And one thing he saw in the Republican Party of 2016 was a huge amount of weakness. And the way I would describe that weakness, and others would describe it differently, is that for years, I mean, you know this, Nathaniel, the, the Republican Party would throw red meat to the, the base, the tea parties, racist dog whistles, whether it's Willie Horton or, you know, you gin up the base, but then you you control those people and you get them behind an establishment candidate. They were playing with fire for a long time. They've been playing with fire for a long time. And I think what Trump saw, and I think Steve Bannon saw this, was there's an opportunity to let the dogs out and to end that kind of agreement between the Republican establishment and the Tea Party base and say, let's harness this Tea Party and, and run ramshod over the Republican establishment. And, and Trump sensed that weakness and he exploited it brilliantly. And he became the nominee almost like that. But that didn't come out of nowhere. That came out of, I think, many, many years of an unhealthy political dynamic. I don't want to get too meta here, but I think there's something, and the Democrats have their own version of this, and the American people are increasingly leery of the party game, whether it's how the Democrats play that or how the Republicans play that. They're looking for people that are breaking out of that mold, 
President Obama broke out of that mold, at least when he was campaigning. I think you can make an argument that he governed as a pretty traditional Democrat. But when he was campaigning in 2008, that was not a Democratic Party campaign. That was a broader appeal that went way beyond the Democratic Party. Trump did the same thing in 2016 in in ways I find reprehensible, but nonetheless, we're outside the norms of party politics. And I think that the, the Democrats and Republicans are both kind of struggling to figure out how to recalibrate. We live in a two party system where a lot of people are unaffiliated. The largest right. group of Americans are unaffiliated. Now, they're, whether they're actually unaffiliated is not, I don't think, what political scientists think. Most people line up in the end of the day with one party or the other, but at least nominally and open to disruptive forces, for sure. I think that that point about independents are really party leaners is very problematic. It's a sleight of hand. It's saying, you know, voters, they go to vote. I mean, they go to register to vote and increasing numbers of them when given the voter registration form, they select, I do not want to be affiliated with a party. The numbers of independents are through the roof. And in fact, the states that have automatic voter registration, like Oregon, you see two out of every three voters that that registers to vote registers, I don't want to be in a political party. So then what the political scientists do, which I think is dishonest, is they they ask those voters, how did you vote in the last election? And nine out of 10 people say, well, I voted for a Democrat or voted for a Republican. And they use that information, how they voted, to negate that identity as an independent. It's not just intellectually dishonest. It actually prevents the building of new alliances, new coalitions in the country between independents and progressives that could be transformative. I suspect that the the people who vote, that register independent and vote for one party or the other, that there's a lot more to it than just who they voted for. I bet you that they share a lot of the constellation of beliefs that one party or the other has, but I'm not steeped in that. And it's probably not profitable for us to worry about it. What I'm curious about is you decide a few years before the Trump entry to start this organization, Open Primaries. What's the thinking about that? What's the founding story there? There's been an uneven, non-linear process of people starting to work on this issue of open primaries. So first began to work on it in 2003 with Mike Bloomberg in in New York City, where you've got a million independents who are unable to participate in municipal elections because the primary is the only election and independents can't vote. And Mike and the Independence Party, which was the party created out of the Reform Party coalition, and it still existed in New York after the Reform Party fell apart, made a deal where Mike would run as a Republican and an independent. And in exchange for his endorsement by the Independence Party, uh, Mayor Bloomberg would put a referendum on the ballot for open primary. So we worked on that there. It got crushed. We lost two to one. 
Governor Schwarzenegger started working on, on it out in California in the midst of just a massive political crisis in California. Got crushed in 2004. And then President Obama comes around in 2008 and engineers a campaign with David Plouffe and David Axelrod to beat Hillary Clinton by specifically targeting the open primary states. And if you look at the data of the 2008 primary, um, in the open primary states, Obama beats Clinton. In the closed primary states, Clinton beats Obama. And if every state had had closed primaries, Hillary would have been the nominee. But he picked up a lot of his delegate advantage in the uh, caucus states, actually. Well, there's only there's only a, a, a handful of those, but those are open. But mostly it was the open primary states. There were 33 states that allowed independent voters to vote in the Democratic presidential primary. And he won, I think, 27 of those 33. And if you just tally the votes, she wins the closed, he wins the open. And it was starting to, to dawn on myself and other people that, wow, the structure of the primary system it, it actually changes a whole set of outcomes and ability of new coalitions like the coalition that Obama had put together. You couldn't put that coalition together in a closed primary environment. It was both independents and Republicans being able to, to join that. You'd have to go through the extra work of getting independents to register into that party in order to vote, right? And independents don't want to join a party. They really don't. Again, it's to this point of the dishonesty of the political scientists. They use how you vote, but independents don't want to join a political party, not even a third party. So I started Open Primaries in 2009 as just a website. I was the chief of staff at a, um, a nonprofit called Independent Voting, which was organizing independent voters into a non-party structure and started this website to simply kind of aggregate discussion and, and activity from around the country that was kind of bubbling up organically. And then in 2014, got seed funding from Arnold Ventures to kind of take this website, and make it to an actual organization. And, and now in 2021, I'm really, I'm really excited that there's there's so many different players and organizations and people that are working on this issue. What's Arnold Ventures? It's a, a nonprofit, a foundation founded by John and Laura Arnold, who are uh, philanthropists based in Texas. They work on a whole portfolio of, of issues from criminal justice reform to drug pricing reform, environmental issues, and democracy reform. It's one of their big issues. They're big into ranked choice voting and open primaries and redistricting reform and a whole set of political reforms that would make the country a better place and more governable. Tell me about your organization as an organization. We're small. You know, we, we raise a million to $2 million a year, kind of depending on the year. You know, it's a small four-person shop. We're much more focused on building partnerships at the state and local level and kind of organizing and fundraising to support referendums, legislative campaigns, and building local coalitions. We're kind of lean and mean uh, and don't have a lot of um, kind of organizational bloat. 
which is a nice, a positive way of saying we're, we're small and, and underfunded. <laughs> People usually say, they always say punch above their weight. <laughs> we punch above our weight. But really, we're, we're like, I, I think of us, and, I, and I, I think this is starting to pay off, is that, um, you know, I, re I remember the first, first week that I opened up this new office in 2014, I met with a, a very prominent individual who was active in the, in the kind of campaign finance world. And uh, he sat down in my office and before I could even offer him a cup of coffee, he said, you know, the issue of open primaries is illegitimate and toxic. I don't even know why you're doing this. You should be working on a real reform issue like campaign finance reform. And I was that? like, I'm not going to say, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to drop names, but I was thrilled by that conversation because I said, okay, this is a clear indication of what the challenge is, is to stake out and insist that reforming the political process is going to involve a conversation about fully enfranchising voters who do not wish to join a political party. And that to me is a key element of what open primary is. Open primaries, in, in some ways, it's about three different things. It's about better governance. Politicians that get elected in open systems are better legislators, period. They're better, they're better able to work with members of the opposite party. They're more responsive to their constituents. They're much more effective. And we have a million examples of that. But it's also an excuse to have this fight, to have this conversation about will our democracy accommodate the fact that the largest group of voters are people that don't want to be in a political party? Will they get legitimacy? Will they be recognized? Will we start to acknowledge that and not simply insist that independent voters are partisan light voters? That's not just an issue of fairness. That has great developmental possibilities for opening up new new ways to move the country forward out of the kind of, you know, the, the log jam that we're in, the pickle that we're in. Yeah, I'm, I'm susceptible to the argument that putting more people into the electoral process is good. And I'm susceptible to the argument that reforms of in the nature of how we vote can have different outcomes and potentially better outcomes. I think before the interview started, um, you had mentioned that you had listened to the two executive directors of the Institute of Political Innovation that had come uh, on the show and, and been interviewed. Yeah, Saul and Aaron. Saul and Aaron. What is different about what they're proposing from what you would like to see or what would you like to see? Nothing. I, I think what they're doing is great. I'm a big fan of Catherine Gale. I, I think that their proposal, Final Five Voting, which combines nonpartisan primaries with ranked choice voting, is a great solution. I think that it's not an area of difference. It's more an area of emphasis, is that I, I believe that we need maximal tactical flexibility and maximal local input on the different forms of nonpartisan primaries that make sense in different parts of the country. 
I don't think we need a single national solution at this point. Maybe 50 years down the road, we will. So I'm a big supporter of Final Five. I'm also a big supporter of Final Four. I'm a big supporter of Top Two. I'm a big supporter of simply allowing independents to vote in party primaries. I'm a big supporter of what we enacted in St. Louis back in, um, in 2020, which was using something called approval voting in a nonpartisan primary system. I, I kind of look for any chink in the armor with regards to the party control of the primary system and work with local people to support moving forward in that direction. But I, I think what they're doing at IPI is is pretty brilliant, and I'm I'm you know hoping to partner with them in as many ways as possible to to help them succeed. What do you think is the biggest obstacle to getting this kind of reform passed in a lot of places? You know, the Democrats and Republicans they fight like cats and dogs over every issue except their control of the process. So you'd be amazed at how Democratic and Republican leadership join hands when it comes to preventing a systematic deconstruction of the political system. And there's nothing that they're more threatened by than changing the rules of the primaries. Both parties, they are reluctant to give up their control of the primary system. And that's what a nonpartisan primary is. It's basically saying, this is not going to be run by the parties. This is going to be run by the voters. And voters are going to have maximal choice and control. Now, there's a lot of cracks in that. I don't mean to suggest that in that individual Democrats and Republicans are not supportive of this. And in fact, enthusiastic leaders of it, they are. We just passed a bill in, in Maine for open primaries that got 75% support, bipartisan support. But you're, you're starting at a place where you have tremendous institutional opposition. And it's not highfalutin. Politicians, they don't like to change the system in which they got elected. You know, they're familiar with it. They know it. They know the levers of it. And so that's, I think, the biggest, the biggest obstacle we face is just that entrenched institutional opposition to change whatsoever. To me, there's such a difference between the two parties right now. One of them is taken over by their radicals. And one of them is trying to be responsible to the democracy. Isn't it a time to be supporting the party that actually is working to protect the democracy and not try to make changes that would undermine it? How do you think about it from that lens? Well, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think the parties are the same. And I certainly am not a fan of Donald Trump. And I, I, I don't like much of the efforts that have been led by the Republicans to further restrict voting. But at the same time, the Democratic Party, here's the real deal, in my opinion. The Democratic Party only supports political reform when it will help increase their vote totals. They, they don't support redistricting reform. 
They they want it. They they want it. They just want to gerrymander. Actually, the, actually, it's Democratic states that have redistricting reform, and it's Republican states that don't. In general, like, I mean, it may not have come through the leadership of the Democratic Party, but it came through progressives, right? Well, yes, but look at New York. Look at Maryland. Look at all. Look at Illinois. There are some states that they're protecting themselves and trying to keep Democrats in power, which you would expect out of the Democratic Party. Right. Yeah. But your point is... I think that statement is far less true about the Democratic Party than it is about the Republican Party at this moment in history. Oh, I agree. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the same. I just don't think it's good enough. I don't think it's good enough to, for the, the, the democracy movement to basically say one party is better than the other. We should be focused on supporting that party. I don't begrudge people that take that position. I think it's a, a rational, reasonable position. I, I'm an outlier. I, I think that we need to focus on making the deeper structural changes because if we don't, we're going to be in real trouble as a country. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the two-party system can continue to remake itself in perpetuity and and continue to be a flexible governing arrangement that works for the country. I think some people would argue that the party is really more or less just a vehicle under which office holders run, right? And there's nothing that stops any particular individual from running within that party. In fact, your former independent candidate did and and so have lots of others along the way. I think I understand the argument that that it shuts out a certain kind of candidate that doesn't fit with that party and might fit better with a broader group of the electorate. But you have to organize preferences in some way to move legislation through legislatures, right? And and that's what a lot of what a party does is try to get people aligned in a coalition that then can be voted in or out according to whether or not they do a good job. Yes, and I th I think that it, it's it's helpful what you're saying because I think that one of the things that goes undiscussed in these conversations about hey should we you know create a new alternative or just work within the party system I think it is perfectly reasonable and might be the right way to go to 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 go the direction that you're talking about what what I'm engaged in and what my colleagues are engaged in is we're trying to have a conversation about the fact that the parties, the Democrats and Republicans, they are not just the biggest competitors. They aren't just the biggest political organizations in the country. They run our democracy. They're in charge. They're the umpires. They run the primaries, right? No, 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 no. They run the Federal Election Commission. They run the, every the state legislation doesn't do anything at all. Right. Because the Democrats and Republicans run it and they've set it up. It's the, well, because it's the, the Republicans. It's actually because the Republicans will not allow it to enforce the law. I mean, it's not the Democrats that won't enforce the law. I mean, it's it's the that blame doesn't lie with both parties. It lies with one party. No, it's it's designed. It's the only regulatory agency in Washington that has six commissioners. Every other regulatory agency has an odd number of commissioners. It's designed not to be partisan. Well, it's designed, I would say it's designed to be bipartisan to make sure that, but, but for example, it, 
in New York, where I'm registered to vote, if you're an independent voter, you're not allowed to be a poll worker. It's illegal to be a poll worker. Now you could say, what's what's the big deal about that? You start going through the election code. You start looking at how our democracy is, is run in practice. We have completely conflated the political parties. They're not competitors. They actually run the process. And I don't think that's healthy. I actually think if we could departisanize the political process, including the primaries, but not only the primaries, the Democrats and Republicans would be much better political organizations. I think they would function much more effectively and positively. I'm not saying, hey, the parties are the same. I actually find your argument quite compelling that the Democrats are better than the Republicans. I, I, I gravitate at, towards At this that. point in time, yeah. But what I don't accept is that we should continue down the road of allowing the political parties to be both the Yankees and the Mets and also the umpires that are running the game and controlling the playing field. I think that's anti-competitive and anti-developmental for the country and for the parties. I also hear a lot in your argument that makes sense to me. One of the things that I worry about is like there is there are profoundly democratic rules that are enshrined within the primary process within the parties about representation, about who gets to vote. There are lots of developments and reforms that are part of that process that have taken years to enact. If you allow random people like the reform party to, to like have equal space or you allow like a random independent candidate to be on the stage in a, in a debate without the process of going from state to state and getting elected under rules established in advance, like allow a Bloomberg to ha- compete in an equal way for all his virtues, you know, to ha- as the candidates that went through this process, that seems hazardous to me. The strongest argument to me for sort of like the final five ranked choice voting, it does seem to me like it changes the incentive of the candidate to appeal to a broader coalition in that district. If there's a reform that will change the incentives around that, that could really help. I agree. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm a big fan of nonpartisan primaries. Because to your point, I I think a party, whether a Democratic, Republican, or a a new party, should have the right to conduct its business, vet its candidates, make its endorsements in a way that that, only... But that primary is the process by which it does that. Right. But that's the problem. Well, that's confusing. So, like, what are you saying? Like, before, so should we have a partisan primary and then a nonpartisan primary and then a general election? If there's a party, how is the party going to find its candidates to put forward in, in the nonpartisan primary? Or we just let candidates go forward into a general election unvetted and forget about the primary? Well, I think that the primary in an ideal world. The primary is not the process by which the members of a party determine the nominee for that party. It's the process by which the voters of a district determine which candidates be at the top two, the top four, the top five, which candidates go from round one to round two. 
The political parties are private organizations. They're private organizations that are completely open. They're just people running these organizations. You can go in there, you can take over your Democratic Party. They're not like these secretive cabals. They're totally open. Right. But they're I mean, private. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and right now the primaries, the primaries are funded by the taxpayers. So it's a it's a it's a general it's it's a publicly administered and and um, right. It, it's basically a public thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the gap is that you end up. And again, I I'm not making this as an anti party. I actually think if the Democrats and Republicans gave up their control of the system and simply participated in a system that wasn't controlled by the parties, they would be much stronger. They'd be much healthier. Do you, think we're, to, do you think we're governed better in states that have open primaries than we are in states with closed primaries? I think the difference between open and closed when the primaries are still partisan is it's, it's better when it's open, but it's not a uh, it's not a massive difference. The game changer is when you move to a nonpartisan primary. So for example, Nebraska. Nebraska has had a nonpartisan primary legislature for 90 years. On the one hand, it is a, a deep red state. 70% of the members of the legislature are Republican. On the other hand, it is a state in which Democrats and Republicans work together on a wide range of issues in which progressive issues routinely make their way through the legislature. They abolish the death penalty. They enact, you know, driver's license for the, uh, for illegal uh, residents. They uh, create a gas tax so they can do infrastructure improvement in a red state because these legislators are not so hamstrung by the norms and practices of party politics. Legislators come from all over the country to visit Nebraska to find out what they're doing right. And what they're doing right is they've departisanized their system at the state level. You're also seeing that in California and Washington, uh, where they have nonpartisan primaries, a much more functional legislature and government. It's not a silver bullet. I'm the, the first one who says if you enact open primaries, it doesn't transform the political culture. It creates new possibilities for some new developmental coalitions and ways of governing that we desperately need in the country. Earlier in the interview, you alluded to something that piqued my interest, um, which was these kind of reforms would open the door to new forms of collaboration between Democrats and independents. Do you remember saying that? I do. Can you expand on that? Right now, if you look at areas in American life where you're seeing some credible and positive policy development, you look at felon voting rights restoration, well, a referendum that passed in Florida with over 62% of, of support. You look at criminal justice reform, drug policy reform. And one of the features of these efforts is that they put together coalitions that don't play by the partisan rule books. Or they put together proposals on issues where there are both Democrats and Republicans that are in support. I mean, isn't that really all well, that there is? 
I, I, I mean, that's one way to look at it. And that's I your mean, opinion. That's for, well, I mean, that's for sure for like the First Step Act in the national legislature, right? That the reason that managed somewhat miraculously to be, to get to law was you had people in both parties actually working together because for different reasons, they supported different aspects of that reform and they were able to get Trump on board too, right? Right. That's more a function of preference, right? Well, I think, if, uh, again, if you look at those issues, a lot of those things are, t- I mean, they're, they're pretty rare some, right now, unfortunately. They're, they're pretty rare, but that's, that's an element of them. And I think that, you know, one of your recent guests, Sarah Jane's talked about this, how there is deep support in some of the most rural Republican voting areas of the country for a wide range of progressive issues. So you say, well, why can't you get those things? And I think a lot of it has to do with the ways in which the current party structure makes it more difficult, doesn't make it impossible, but it it makes it much more difficult for progressive coalitions to emerge that don't, they're not democratic party cookie cutter campaigns. They're campaigns that bridge the spectrum, include independent voters, break out of those party playbooks and can inspire people. And I think people are including many of your recent guests who are working in rural America are starting to kind of grapple with this. I think Barack Obama did it better than anybody. Is he said, I can't just, I can't beat Hillary Clinton by just being a Democrat. Well, he starts that with that speech in 2004, which is a, which is a anti-polarization speech, right? Right. Right. There's a reason that I asked you to come on the show. I think that there are some systemic deep problems with the system right now. They're operating on tons of different levels from what we're doing online to the way that primaries are organized. There are people working hard to make changes to those. And I am pleased that you're one of them. Can you just just for a second, talk about the, the allies that you have in this space? There are literally scores of organizations I know who are kind of in the same nonpartisan reform movement. How do you guys work together? Yeah, and it's in very early stages. And, you know, I was having a conversation with a with a colleague just a couple of weeks ago in which I said that it, it, it could be the case that the organizations that are going to get this issue over the finish line, they, they don't even exist yet. We're still very small. It's groups like Unite America, like IPI, there's increasing numbers of chapters of the League of Women Voters of Common Cause that are starting to play with this issue. Uh, it's a lot of individual actors. I've gotten to know um, Jim Hendren, who is a, a state senator in Arkansas. He's a 20-year Republican, recently left the Republican Party and became an independent. He's the only independent in the legislature in in Arkansas, very powerful former Republican. He's leading a whole statewide crusade to impact on gerrymandering, on open primaries, and build coalitions of Democrats, Republicans, and independents to work on some common sense policy. Um, One of my my biggest advocates uh, is Danny Ortega, who is 
on the board of La Raza Foundation. He's a 40-year Latino civil rights activist based in Phoenix. And he tells me every time we talk on the phone, he says closed primaries is the biggest form of voter suppression in the Latino community, bar none. And there's new research coming out of USC that is fascinating, that shows something I'd never even thought of, which is that closed primaries have a significant effect on general election turnout. And the biggest impact is in the Asian and Latino community, because 75% of Latinos live in closed primary states. Um, And so, and you think about that logically, all right, you're a Latino, you're a registered independent, no one talks to you during the primary because you can't vote. And the primary is only two and a half months before the general election in state elections. And then there's a scramble to get your vote in the last week of the campaign, but you don't vote because no one's come and campaign to you. No one's talked to you. But this is not getting talked about in the voter suppression conversations. And that's something that Danny and I are working to change together. But there is a just a growing constellation of legislators, activists, civic groups, good government groups that are saying the way we do party primaries in this country really, really is problematic. You've been doing third party, independent, open primary stuff for your whole life. What's keeping you in this? Uh, I think the psychological term is masochist, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I find it enormously exhilarating. There's a lot of frustration, a lot of defeats, a lot of setbacks at the same time. Sounds appetizing. (laughs) No, but, but there's, there's also huge qualitative leaps, huge changes in how the American people are thinking about these questions. I've seen just tremendous development at all levels among the American people on these questions of democracy. And it goes back to my earliest days as a canvasser. It's one of the things that bugs me the most is when political scientists or pundits say, Americans don't care about process. They don't want to know how the sausage is made. They just want results. My experience is that it's the exact opposite. Process is the only thing the American people care about. The only thing. Now, there's not a lot of ways to give expression to that. But I I find that endlessly rewarding and exhilarating is working on the process because people are very interested and enthusiastic about that. Our roots as a country are in town meetings. They are, you know, like, unfortunately, that, that has been hard to keep with modern technology and giant growth in the country and and everything else. But it seems like things that foster more small D democratic behavior are healthy and inoculate us against things that are anti-democratic that can really take away a lot of rights where what kind of primary we run is hardly all that we're thinking about. Is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? Maybe I would just add one other thing about what keeps me going or what I find interesting. And uh, maybe you'll indulge me just kind of meandering here a little bit. But one of the things I find very, very 
interesting at this particular moment is opportunities to engage with Trump voters. Because I, I, again, going back to the year 2000, I've never been a fan of Donald Trump. I've lived in New York City my whole adult life. I've seen how he operates. I don't like him. But I also don't think that the vast majority of people who voted for him are somehow you know, racist, xenophobic jerks. I think they're people operating within a two-party system that made a particular choice. And one of the things about the open primary issue and about the democracy issue is that it does create platforms and opportunities to bring together people who voted differently in 2016 or in 2020. And I, I find that very nourishing and important. Well, I, I don't disagree with you about the the majority of Republican voters. And someone said to me recently that when you've seen dictators overthrown in other countries, not that he's a dictator, but like would love to be, that if you ask the day before the overthrow, are they with the dictator? They say yes. If you ask the day after, they're not. I think there's just a lot of people who, for individual reasons, have picked the wrong horse there. And and they're good people nonetheless. I'm with you on that, even though I have that argument with people on my side very frequently who are rather more unforgiving. But I just think you're, you don't know from where they come. Yeah. And you're one of your past guests, Sarah Janes. I thought her description of how people in rural America, they support issues that the progressive movement is advancing. And then they give the Republicans credit. The polling on that is just um, unbelievable. But it makes sense to me because the Republicans are the only people that talk to them. They're in their lives. That's something progressives have to really wake up to is the importance of being in people's lives. Well, John, it's good to talk to you today. Uh, Anything else you want to say? No, it's been great talking to you. So that was John Opdyke. He's at openprimaries.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.